Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipper. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good evening and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know. Find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org or download the club's iPhone and Android app for program and schedule information and podcasts of past programs. I'm Kirk Hansen, Executive Director of the Markala Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University, a member of the Silicon Valley Advisory Board of the, of the club, and your moderator for today's program. Today, we're going to take an inside look at the way political campaigns really work, and in turn, the American political system. Campaigns, of course, are st- still seem to be all about the money. And Donald Trump's personal funds aside, most of that money needs to be raised from various interests. The New York Times recently reported that, to date, 158 families have contributed $176 million to the Republican and Democratic presidential campaigns at least $250,000 per family. What monetary rules actually govern campaigns and how often are they broken? What role might campaign finance laws play in in the 2016 campaign and beyond? In the big picture view, what is the thinking that governs political campaigns and how does that impact the messages we receive and, uh, and the candidates who ultimately emerge on top. Today, you'll meet the government official who oversees the financing of federal elections, along with two longtime strategists from opposite sides of the aisle. They will share insights on the way political campaigns are actually run, and we'll ask whether it's possible to be both ethical and victorious. It's now my pleasure to introduce our panelists. Anne Ravel is the chair of the Federal Election Commission. Having been nominated by President Obama and unanimously confirmed by the U.S. Senate. She previously served as vice chair and commissioner starting in 2013. Prior to her federal service, Ms. Ravel was chair of the California Fair Political Practices Commission where she oversaw the regulation of campaign finance, ethics, and conflicts of interest related to office holders and public employees in California. 
Before that, Ms. Ravel was Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Torts and Consumer Litigation in the United States Department of Justice. A. Smith is a 30-year veteran of state and national politics and has directed winning campaigns from district attorney to president. Mr. Smith's roster of Democratic Party clients has included Hillary Clinton, Dianne Feinstein, Barbara Boxer, Jerry Brown, Chicago Mayor Richard Daley, and Howard Dean. In California, Mr. Smith successfully directed Los Angeles Mayor Antonio Villagarosa's underdog campaign and was instrumental in the election of San Francisco District Attorney Kamala Harris as California's Attorney General and San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom as California's Lieutenant Governor. He also ran San Francisco Mayor Ed Lee's first campaign. The New York Times has called him legendary. <laughs> Sounds like the end of your career rather than the beginning of it. I, I certainly can't run in the Republican Party. Ben Ginsburg served as national counsel to the Bush-Cheney presidential campaigns in the 2000 and, 2000 and 2004 election cycles and played a central role in the 2000 Florida recount. In 2012 and 2008, he served as national counsel to the Romney for President campaign. He currently represents numerous political parties, individuals, and corporations specializing in election law issues. Mr. Ginsburg also serves as counsel to the Republican Governors Association. He has been a guest lecturer at the Stanford University Law School, a fellow at Harvard's Institute for Politics, and an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown. Before entering law school, Mr. Ginsburg spent five years as a journalist. Please welcome all of our panels. I will ask our panelists uh, questions for the first 20 or 25 minutes, and then integrate your questions into the discussion, asking the questions that you write on cards. So let me, let me start uh, by giving the audience more of a sense of who you are and what you do. Uh, Ms. Ravel, what powers does the Federal Election Commission actually have? Uh, and what does it mean to, quote, oversee federal elections? You know, I wasn't certain you were going to ask that question, and I, I don't know if you've all seen the House of Cards. There's a there's a um, actual um, part in it where uh, the main character Frank Underwood is about to run for president, mm -hmm. and there is concern by the members of his party about super PACs and the influence that super PACs have. And they said to him, and he, he said in response, I'm not the FEC. I can't wage, I, I can't wave a magic wand. And I just want to be known that the FEC doesn't wage, wave magic wands at all. And I can't either. Um, basically, the FEC oversees campaign finance issues. It does not oversee uh, campaigns generally, or um, elections, even though that's in its title. Uh, what we are mainly concerned with is 
disclosure. It was established after Watergate, and the purpose of it was to restore trust in government because Watergate was essentially a campaign finance issue. Um, and there was a lot of sense of distrust in the public. And they, it was necessary to have an agency that could both um, require disclosure and also enforce, because there previously to that had not been any enforcement mechanism. Mm -hmm. So what, what kind of issues come before the FEC? What, what, well, what's the work of the six commissioners? There, there's a variety. I mean, we, they, they, we can either give ad, opinions to people who come before us to ask us about our regulations and the applicability of them and the law to something that they would like to do. For example, we were asked to look at whether or not um, Bitcoin could be used in campaigns. Um, and so we had some, and, and how it fit in with the election laws that are required. We are also, um, charged with the responsibility of um, issuing regulations relating to new laws and campaign finance issues. So, for example, um, the only regulations that we were actually able to agree on during my tenure were regulations to implement um, certain aspects of Citizens United and the McCutcheon um, decision. And then, of course, people can file complaints for violations, and it can range anywhere, and I can talk about these now because they're public, although we mm -hmm. decide them in confidence. Um, there was an allegation, even though despite the fact that he was in jail, about Jesse Jackson and his use of campaign funds for his personal use and for purchasing mink coats for his mm -hmm. spouse. Um, there are um, issues. This is Jesse Jackson Jr. 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 And there were um, issue, and there are, and we have a number of personal use kinds of um, mm -hmm. uh, issues. There are complaints about illegal coordination because the Supreme Court has said that it is uh, improper to coordinate with independent groups um, and the candidates. Uh, because that is a protection uh, of the law so that there can be independent, um, truly independent expenditures. Uh, let's get it on the table. You've been quoted uh, frequently lately saying that the commission uh, doesn't have much hope of doing its work during the 2016 election right. cycle because of a 3-3 split between Democrats and mm -hmm. Republicans. And the Republicans on the commission have been quoted as saying the role of the commission is not to enforce the laws, which you implied, but to protect free speech in elections. Who's right? Well, of course, I think I'm right. <laughs> There's no question about that. Um, it, there's there's a, a lot of case law that says that the role of a regulatory and administrative agency is not to determine constitutionality of the law. I, my view is there are certain laws, there's the Federal Election Campaign Act that we are sworn to uphold. 
And so uh, that includes deciding that certain um, campaigns, certain committees are required to disclose who their donors are mm -hmm. so that there is no dark money in our, uh, in our elections. Those are things that I think are, we're mm -hmm. required to do. So my view of this is that there's a statement that free speech needs to be upheld. Um, we certainly agree that the First Amendment needs to be respected insofar as the Supreme Court, which is the arbiter of those issues mm -hmm. or other courts, has so mandated in cases that are similar. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to get to you, Ben, so the Republicans <laughs> needn't uh, be worried. We did put you on the right end from this perspective, yeah, it, but, it's yeah, but, but, but left for them. Um, Ace, let's, uh, you're a Democratic campaign manager. Can you help us understand what a campaign manager's job is and, you know, what, what you see as your role? Sure. I mean, one of the biggest jobs is actually spending the money and making sure it's spent, spent well. But let me, before I start, let me just say one thing, which is that uh, Ann is one of my heroes. And the reason why is because as a public official had the guts in 2012, and this is something that's so lacking and something we need to talk about, to actually enforce the laws in the whiny days of the 2012 election and go all the way to the California Supreme Court and take on the dark money and, and actually put it on the front pages of the newspapers of California so voters could fairly judge um, how money was influencing that election. And, and so uh, I got to say, you are a great example of, of how it works. Oh, thank you. <laughs> What do you do as a campaign manager? <laughs> well, you, you, you spend money. Was yeah. that a diversion? Was I, that a, I, yeah. a debate I, trick? I, I would, yeah. <laughs> I, I, the, the trick to running campaigns, and, and I actually think money is actually a little overestimated uh, in the sense that uh, there's not a direct correlation to spending money and winning campaigns. Campaigns that win... Uh, need to have a certain amount of money. Now, what's tricky about California uh, is that it's such a big state that you have to have a huge amount of money just to basically get known. So it's, so it's always a huge hurdle. And I think one of the real questions to ask in this context is, what, what are the real purposes of these regulations and what are the real effects on campaigns? And, and I was kind of curious earlier before I came here, I, I pulled out the, um, the actual ballot book from 1974, when Secretary of State Jerry Brown passed Proposition 9, and uh, one of the early political reform acts in the country. And what's fascinating is when you read through it, you, you read through the findings and declarations, and all the public ills that this is supposed to cure, every one of them, too much money, too much influence, uh, you know, not enough reporting, too many wealthy people, not enough good people running for office, they're all true today, 40-some years later, and, and the real question to ask is, what has been the effect of these laws on all those very high-minded things that, that are things that we should strive for, and are there other ways to actually do that? We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipper of Commonwealth Club right after this.
Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. Let me, let me, we're going to come back to talk more about that, but uh, Ben, uh, can you tell us, you've, you've been uh, sort of at the center of much of presidential politics for the, la- for the last 16 years. Can you tell us what a council to a campaign really does and sure. what your role was there? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks very much for having me. It's great to be back amongst the Republican base, which I always <laughs> <enjoy>. <laughs> um, uh, people People who, who hire me hire me because they want to run legal and ethical campaigns. That's what an election lawyer essentially does. And all campaigns, but especially presidential campaigns, are really like startup businesses in many ways, albeit in a heavily regulated environment. So there are the election laws, the laws involving how you get people out to vote, um, small business laws, you're going to have employment laws, contract uh, disputes. So it really is a, a broad, really marvelously diverse uh, sort of a practice, really at the heart of, of getting people who you believe in elected to office. So uh, is, is there a, a sense amongst candidates that you deal with that all of these requirements for reporting and such are burdensome? Or is there a sense that these are a part of uh, running for office and satisfying the public's uh, need to know? 
Oh, I think they're they're pretty much baked into the cake. I mean, Ace raised a really good point, which is after this particular scheme of running elections since the 1970s, what have you achieved? Is it achieving its purpose? Um, does it get in the way of campaigns being able to reach the people? Uh, and you've got terrible turnout statistics, right? Maybe 50% of the population turns out to vote. So it's not a system that's enhancing participation in any noticeable way. And to what do you attribute that decline in, in people voting and, the, if you like, the lack of trust in the process? I'm not sure it's a lack of trust in the process so much as um, a process that doesn't properly involve people enough. One of the one of the impacts of limiting what candidates can make can raise and spend, yet having a robust First Amendment that the Supreme Court has mm -hmm. has enforced way back since 1976 in the first um, case to to question the campaign finance laws, is really how do you run a campaign, as Ace says, getting to, to talk to enough people, but also spreading out your base and getting people who are not in, intuitively involved in politics or enjoy politics to know what's going on and want to participate. And in that, in that sense, this is not a system you can point to and say it's helped. Let's Let's come back to a fundamental question that we're so far avoiding, which is what is a good campaign? What is an ethical campaign? What is a campaign that, that fills the role that it should play? Do you want to start with that, Anne? Well, yes, and, and I'd like to um, speak to what Ben just said, because what I see is campaigns that are micro-targeting, whether on cable TV or on Facebook to actually only speak to people that they think are going to be likely voters or for them or people that they think are going to likely give them money. And so the campaigns themselves have limited the numbers of people and that they're reaching out to. They have not tried to expand the group of potentially disaffected voters. And I personally believe that the, the disaffection of the voters doesn't relate to the campaign finance laws, although we might agree that some of the laws don't enhance any trust. Um, it, it's, you know, there's certainly a lot in uh, Jerry Brown's Prop 9 that um, it makes no sense as far as I'm concerned, in that regard. Secretary of State. At the time, Secretary of State. Yeah. But, but nonetheless, the idea of having disclosure, having um, people be informed about who's behind campaigns, and the concern about the great deal of money that's being spent in super PACs when it's only a small slice of the population mm -hmm. that is giving that money and the rest of the people. I mean, in the 2014 election, there were 11% fewer individuals 
who contributed to campaigns. And many, there was a whole lot more money spent. So it was, as the front page of the New York Times said yesterday, it's a very small group of extremely wealthy people who are now participating in campaigns. But there doesn't seem to be an incentive. There doesn't seem to be a view. And I think it's an ethical question in some ways that if you are looking at the long view and you're going to be a legislator or even an executive, wouldn't you want to include the majority of the American people and what their interests are? Because this is a representative democracy, wouldn't you want to speak to them? So a good campaign, from your perspective in part, is one that attracts a wide range of funders as well as people paying as, attention to the messages. Yes, because I think funders actually, once they give, even if it's a small amount, they become more connected to the issues and to the, to the candidates. So how, would you all agree, uh, Ben or, or Ace, and, and how do you achieve, if you like, more participation via contributions than we have today with the focus on whether it's 150 or 200 families? I, I think the question is more fundamental than money. I think it's having interesting elections with interesting candidates talking about interesting things. And um, uh, actually, the, I, the best piece I've read on the presidential race was written by the uh, television critic of the New York Times on Saturday, where he, as much as uh, you may not uh, love Donald Trump here in, in San Francisco, he actually understands how the audiences and how to connect with folks in the world we live in. In, in admittedly, a, a a chunk of the of the pie, but uh, you know the critic compared the other campaigns to running the equivalent of Ed Sullivan shows, and and I I think there's a there's a lot of evils and and ills in politics, and I think a lot of them go back to other things besides money. For instance, the overuse of polling, the use mm. you know the belief that you're just gonna figure out what people want to hear and just say it and instead of actually taking stands and being controversial. So I, I think it's more fundamental than money. Do you, do you think candidates show that tendency more frequently now of finding out what people want to no, hear? No question about it. And it's something that, that I, I think will, I think will go the way of the dinosaurs, but eventually, but it's going to take, it always takes systems a long time to correct the change. And, and I think we're probably at the, the front end of that. You, do you agree with that, Ben, that uh, candidates are, you know, uh, speaking to their polling rather than uh, speaking to their beliefs? Uh, I actually think it's hard to generalize that. I think there is too much of that. I think, if anything, the, the Trump, Carson, Bernie Sanders for the Democrats function, there are people who, who really are not listening to their polls and at least for now are having... Um, the most success. I mean, I think a good campaign is a campaign that knows the candidate knows what he or she stands for, articulates a message to do that, goes out and looks for people who will support those principled beliefs. Um, I, I, I think, if anything, 
campaigns do not rely on micro-targeting. What campaigns, a good campaign will do is to talk about the broad issues and the broad philosophies of the client and use micro-targeting as a tool underneath that. The most successful micro-targeting is, and that's, that's sort of drilling down into people's characteristics, but the most successful micro-targeting are people who are, are campaigns that find voters who basically agree with the candidate but haven't participated. Expanding the electorate is the most prized gift that a campaign manager can ever, can ever give a candidate, and that's by philosophy and message that excites people who don't normally get excited. Mm-hmm. Um, we got we got to face the money question head on and what its effect is on these developments lately. Let's take super PACs first. Uh, does the fact that super PACs are so much a part of the equation today, even to the standpoint where in reporting how much money candidates have raised, the press has been tallying the campaign raised and the independent uh, committees, the super PACs, what they're raising. Uh, and that, of course, as Ann indicated, has been uh, the province more often of these very large givers. Is that getting in the way of the broader participation? That uh, well, you think look, I, is important? I think what you described and what the system is today is a system that is dysfunctional and upside down. The core of today's campaign finance system is to limit what candidates and political parties can raise. Truth of the matter is that super PACs, according to the Supreme Court, and I believe it's good First Amendment mm-hmm. law, have a right to say what they want to say. When you limit the amount of money that candidates can raise, in effect, you're, you're enhancing the value of what a super PAC brings. And if you really want candidates to control the messages of your campaign, seems to me to be the, the sort of institutional design we'd all want, the campaigns control the message in the debate and not super PACs, then you don't limit candidates. And that makes super PACs um, sort of less essential to the process. They have less space in which to, to operate. So does that imply that your, your policy prescription at this point is to take the caps off the individual campaigns as well as the super yeah, PACs? I mean, I think you would have a much better, well, you can't put limits on super PACs. We've already established that under mm-hmm. the Supreme Court. So what I would do is increase tremendously what candidates can raise themselves, what the political parties can raise and spend on behalf of their candidates, mm-hmm. so that it is the candidates who control the message and the way a campaign is taking place now. But I wouldn't limit super PACs. I don't think that's acceptable First Amendment mm-hmm. doctrine. Comments from either of you on uh, super PACs and their, in, their effect yeah. on the system? Certainly, uh, there have been complaints filed regarding uh, coordination that, sh- that the Federal Elections Commission has not been able to undertake uh, examination of. Is, is, is that the issue we ought to be focusing on? Well, I, I think ultimately not. And, and I, I have to disagree to some extent because I, I do think that the main concern is that because people are relying, candidates are relying on super PACs and wealthy individuals to fund their campaigns, not even relating to polling or anything else or, or having a message. 
A lot of them seem to be, appear to be getting their messages from super PACs because the people who are the big donors to those super PACs, there have been a number of newspaper reports where they want to take a more active role in determining what the policy is of the campaign. And we certainly know that many of them are like shadow campaigns. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that taking off the cap for the candidates is going to ameliorate that problem. I, I totally agree that it is a problem, but it's a problem that is of the Supreme Court's making and it's a fact of life. But taking off the cap is just going to mean that the same thing is true for the candidates and the parties and everyone will be beholden to the policy interests of a f small group of people who have a lot of money, such as the ones whose houses were displayed on the front page of the New York Times yesterday. I mean, I, and I don't have any problem with people having a lot of money and mm -hmm. contributing to campaigns, but it needs to be um, more um, equal in the sense that candidates have the incentive to try to reach out to more people. Ace, is there any way out of this dilemma of uh, the Supreme Court has spoken regarding super PACs and now the money's f flowing so freely? Well, yeah, to borrow a Yiddish term, I mean, I think it's a Shonda, but it's, it's, uh, it, it's something that um, is running campaigns you have to deal with and, and live with. I mean, I, I think one of the astonishing things I find running campaigns is just the vast amount of money that gets wasted by super PACs and, and gets used poor, poorly because there isn't candidate control. And so there does need to be a return to the equilibrium. Uh, but I also think the other, the other thing that's troubling about the whole move towards super PACs is that um, they get used as vehicles for, um, you know, all kinds of other things. And, uh, you know, but, but ultimately part of the problem is that to some degree or another, by having, I, I actually think all the, all the caps shouldn't be lifted, but I think they're too restrictive right now. And I think kind of to some degree or another, we've kind of said, okay, we're going to make uh, beer and wine legal, but, uh, you know, uh, in surprise when someone else makes hard liquor. Mm -hmm. and, and that's kind of the situation we're in. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipper of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. It was interesting, um, uh, Justice John Paul Stevens, in his Six Amendments book last year, one of his proposed Six Amendments would reverse, basically, this, the uh, super PAC decision, Citizens United. Um, what about so-called dark money? Uh, welfare organizations that uh, have spent money on campaigns uh, and do not have to report their donors. Uh, is that a problem? 
in terms of the credibility of elections and the ethics of elections from each of your standpoint? I think it's a huge problem. And I, and I think it's a shame. And I think that uh, one of the things that's, that's um, odd about living in California and probably a good place to have this discussion is that uh, in California, we actually have all three species of campaign um, mm -hmm. systems. We have the um, kind of the, the federal system, which we know, which is restricting of contributions and um, uh, types of contributions. You have some ultra orthodox, you know, kind of uh, municipal elections where there's actual ceilings in the amount of money you can spend and there are uh, matching funds. Um, which is another system. And then we have the initiative system, which is just literally the Wild West. You can raise any amount of money you want for anything. All you have to do is report it. Mm -hmm. And I think that, the, you know, I, I think as long as there's truthful reporting and people can, can figure out where the money's coming from and how much money's being spent, uh, I think voters are very smart. As a matter of fact, in, in California, I mean, as you, everyone knows, we have a history of, as uh, a state going back uh, decades of not electing self-funders because voters are very, very aware of uh, money in politics and, and actually will base their decisions upon that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, ben, the, uh, the whole issue of uh, welfare organizations spending a lot of money, I don't know whether you have clients who are in this this space, but to what extent from your analysis of elections uh, and the fairness of elections, is that a problem or is it not? Is it a red herring? Well, I think if you're talking about providing information to voters, then the social welfare organizations on both the left and the right provide a service and a function in terms of getting out more information than there would be without them. Um, again, I think it goes back to the, the system of limiting candidates, that you ha if, you, if you allow candidates to have sufficient funds to air all their messages, then there just simply becomes less of a need for social welfare organizations to do what they're doing or super PACs to do what they're doing. So this the kind of system we've had in place since the early 1970s has really created the problem of both dark money soft money, social welfare organizations, whatever terms you want to use for them, and super PACs. Um, let me uh, just at this point, for the benefit of the radio audience, uh, say that you're listening to the Commonwealth Club of California program. We're discussing the intersection of political campaigns, money, and ethics, and ultimately the future of politics in the United States. Our panelists are Ann Ravel, Chair of the Federal Election Commission, Ace Smith, veteran Democratic campaign strategist whose clients have included Hillary Clinton, Dianne Feinstein, and Jerry Brown, and Ben Ginsburg, a veteran Republican campaign strategist who was national counsel to Mitt Romney's campaign in 2008 and the Bush-Cheney campaigns of 2000 and 2004. I'm Professor Kirk Hansen of the Markala Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University and the program moderator. You will also find video of the Commonwealth Club programs online at the club's YouTube channel. Um, we're going to go in a moment to the questions lots of good questions that you have already submitted, but there are at least two other areas which 
people who debate the ethics of campaigns have raised, not just the money issues that, that you all uh, have raised here, but uh, they're the issues of redistricting uh, and gerrymandering and the manipulation that uh, has occasionally gone on uh, there uh, for one party or the other, and the politics of voter access, be it the number of hours uh, a poll is open or here in California now, uh, you're automatically registered uh, the moment you apply for a driver's license uh, as of yesterday when uh, Governor Brown signed uh, that provision. Um, are those important dimensions in your estimations to fair uh, election campaigns? Anne? It's not, I understand. You know, it's not within my purview, but yeah. at least not with regard to redistricting, so yes. I think I'll pass on that one. But um, the issue of voter access, I think, is important, but uh, to follow up on a, something that, that Ace said, which I think is true, the real issue in California anyway, this isn't true nationwide because obviously we know that there are states that are trying to prohibit people from being able to vote. And that is, is seriously problematic. But I think in, in California for the most part, the issue that is more important is trying to get message out to those people who are not now voting in a in a seriously low numbers that they're voting particularly in California but all over the country I think it's um, the lowest number of people voting since World War II um, and somehow we need to and the candidates need to talk to the public about things that are important to them mm and figure out ways to reach individuals to get them to understand how important it is to participate in our political system. Talk to people online, be able to send emails is a much less expensive way to raise small dollars. So there are more and more campaigns, I think even on the congressional and Senate level, where candidates have struck uh, a positive chord and gotten a ton of small donations in. Bad news is that the messaging required to get those small donations tends to be polarizing messaging. And so you've, you, yeah, you're going to get more people involved with small dollar donations, but the rhetoric needed to bring in those small dollar donors has tended to be more heated. It, it's, it's also hugely expensive. Once you get past the presidential level to, to, um, create a broad. So I think the lists are getting better and better so that there so, may be some mm -hmm. economies of scale. And it's, I think it's still cheaper than sending mail, isn't it? It is, but it's still it, it's a tremendous investment. Yeah. It really we, is. We do have a number of questions about right. the effect of technology. So. And, and I, that's what I wanted to raise, Please. actually, because I think that um, technology may be a solution to the money in politics issue just entirely because there's a number of um, tech uh, companies now, they're sort of democracy technology companies, and they're trying new mechanisms of bringing in support for candidates, whether it be presidential or local, um, that doesn't involve 
contributions mm -hmm. that actually involves kind of commitments to candidates and hopefully getting sufficient commitments so that it totally upends the campaign finance um, requirements at all, which is possibly the future. So are you optimistic about that future? Uh, yes, I am optimistic about it. I think it's really good to try to get, and, and I think you're right that small donors now tend to be more polarized because of um, the ways that, that the mechanisms that are being used to go after the small donors. But I still go back to believing that a lot of attempt is not made to go after the disaffected, the ones who haven't made up their minds and perhaps the ones who need to be encouraged to vote. It's often said that we're guilty in Silicon Valley and the Bay Area of feeling that we're going to be saved by technology Tech. on absolutely everything. I can now add politics <laughs> absolutely. to that list. Good. In the interim, while we're waiting to be saved by technology, there are several questions here about what structural reforms ought to be undertaken in the short run. And, and Anne, do you have particular reforms for the FEC that that you believe should be considered and that you would support? Um, I, I personally believe that the problem at the FEC, and a lot of people have said, well, it's because there are six members, not more than three of them may be of one political party, and it requires four votes to do anything. Um, and as a result, it often deadlocks. But I don't have a problem with that uh, structure at all. I, I can understand very well why Congress decided that it should be that way, so that one party could not be used to go after another candidate of another party for reasons that are improper. But I think the problem is with the way that the commissioners are selected. Um, while they're all presidential appointees, uh, they're essentially, for the most part, selected by the majority or minority leader of the Senate. And it would be so much better, I believe, um, if they were selected by some, you know, group advisory group that would make recommendations to the president of people who it would be difficult for the Senate not to confirm. Any, uh, uh, would the two of you uh, support that kind of a reform or do you have your own favorite reforms for the FEC? I, I don't have reforms for the FEC, but I, I would say the, that if you change the structure of uh, certain aspects of elections, you actually profoundly impact the spending and, and, and all those aspects. And, and two examples I would give, if you move all the municipal and statewide elections to presidential election years, uh, I actually think you would have built in a broader, larger audience that you're not going to have to get out to vote because they're going to get out to vote anyway. And that and thus saves you from spending huge amounts of resources uh, to get people out to vote. And that's just historically the way it's going. And then the other thing that I found very intriguing, and I know this is a little utopian, but um, having done um, Libby Schaaf's race in Oakland, uh, where they have ranked choice voting, I've become a big fan of ranked choice voting, and I'll tell you why. Um, in that Oakland mayor's race, everyone had uh, a limit of $400,000. That was it. Everyone had the, basically the same table stakes. 
But the more profound impact is that in a ranked choice vote uh, situation, you are actually disadvantaged tremendously if you try and do targeting. Because to win a ranked choice voting, you actually have to broadly reach as many people as possible with a broad message because you actually have to get second and third place votes. So it incense, um, you know, kind of a, a, a broader, I think, more um, honest campaign. And it also completely disincents negative campaigning because if you go negative on someone else, you'll actually hurt your own standing tremendously. And so you can't ever afford to do that. And you will fracture your vote. And so you won't get second or third place votes. So I, I, I actually think there's kind of extra financial, you know, campaign finance reforms that actually could have a huge impact on the campaign finance reform aspect of campaign. The structure of the campaigns themselves. Yeah, would actually impact the, the structure of spending and the structure of, of enforcement and, mm -hmm. and all of that because you would just change the way they're done. Mm -hmm. And you... Ben, uh, changes structurally to the FEC or... Uh, I, I, I sort of come at this from a fundamentally different direction, which is this is core protected First Amendment speech that we're talking about. This is political speech be protected by the First Amendment. And I think a lot of the problems that we're talking about have been attempts to overregulate that core First Amendment speech so that many of the rules and regulations lead to these sort of odd results. Um, so I would kind of go back and, and have a good time going through the reg book and making this much more about candidates being able to control the messaging that they do. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. Strengthen the political parties to enable them to support their candidates. Reduce the necessity of outside voices in the campaigns because the campaigns are well enough funded and not try and overregulate this area where we should be dealing in a marketplace of ideas and competing ideas. Mm -hmm. There's such a difference in perspective between the, the three Republicans and three Democrats on the FEC and on the, the perspectives we've heard here. There are several questions saying, is it possible to have a bipartisan solution to the, the structure of campaigns? Could we have a, a McCain-Feingold initiative uh, in the future? Uh, or are we inevitably going to be dead in the water because of the polarization? be interested in each of your perspectives about whether any kind of movement is going to be possible given the degree of uh, polarization currently. 
Well, I think the answer to that is yes, actually. I, I think that there are practitioners across the aisle who agree that what McCain-Feingold did in terms of restricting the ability of the political parties to help their candidates has had a negative effect overall. I mean, most of McCain-Feingold has been struck down by the courts, with really the exception of the restrictions on the political parties and federalizing what they can do. Um, and I do think you can now get some agreement across the aisle to strengthen the role of parties, which would in turn strengthen the ability of candidates to, to get out their message. So I, I do think there can be some, some movement in that area. I'm an optimist on this question, and not because I believe that we can kind of engineer or re-engineer the laws. I don't think that will have much effect. I, I'm an optimist because um, all great things happen in California first. <laughs> and the, the truth of the matter is, if you look at what the Cal, where the California electorate has moved, the balance of power in California is with independent voters, and they tend to be uh, younger, not as tied to party, uh, less polarized and and very much more open-minded. And I think that is the, there is a generation coming of age in this country. It's not just happening in California. It just happened to happen here first. That is coming of age that does not feel the necessity of, of you know, essentially uh, placing themselves on the tapestry of, of their social networks through political parties. And, and I think that will ultimately be what transforms the polarized place we live in today. Ann? I agree with Ace on um, the fact that um, all innovation occurs in California <laughs> and that um, there is a lot of hope to work across party lines in California, definitely. And it's also true that nationwide more voters are independent and identify as independent, and that's certainly going to change the dynamic. As, as we go forward. Um, you know, I think with respect to at the Federal Election Commission and with regard to the rules, I personally agree that parties should be strengthened. I don't have a problem with looking at the rules relating to McCain-Feingold. Mm -hmm. But the question more for me is, is there a willingness on the part of um, the Republicans to also look at the importance of regulation in this arena because at no question there are, there's free speech implications, but also the American public deserves integrity in their elections. They deserve that there's not just a free-for-all of spending, whether it be from parties or, or candidates or super PACs, and there needs to be robust disclosure. And I think that that's the crux of the problem because I'm not sure that, uh, at least in my conversations in Washington, it's true here in California that, mm. that Republicans and Democrats have voted in the legislature in California to increase disclosure. But that wouldn't be the case in Washington. 
So we're going to be saved by technology and by youth. And by California. And by California. <laughs> and by California. There, there, there are two or three questions. I've got to use this uh, at the end. There are two or three questions about general ethics in campaigns, and I, I want to put this to Ace. So you're in the last days of the campaign, and a real hit piece comes out from your opponent that says uh, uh, things that are false about you. Um, your, your temptation is to do something more than simply say it's false, but to use some things you've been saving. Can the typical campaign resist the temptation to uh, uh, use the most damaging things you have about the opponent in those last days? Well, I think the truth about most campaigns is that if there is something truly damaging about an opponent, frankly, it will come out in the press. And you would have usually, used it much earlier. I wouldn't have used it. I, I, I pick up my newspaper and read about it, and, uh, and, and maybe I might reiterate what was said. But, um, uh, you know, that's just the truth of it all. And, and it's, you know, we, you know, we can watch too many Games of Thrones and Houses of Cards, and, you know, mm -hmm. that's not actually the way it works. Are there more false statements made in campaigns today than when you began your career as a campaign manager? There, there's far fewer. Fewer. And, and the reason is, I mean, not to say writ large crazy stuff that ends up on the internet, that's different, but by, by official organs of campaigns is because there's, um, I actually think in the world we live in a lot more instant accountability um, for a lot of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's always examples that, that um, you can point to that disprove that, but I think by and large, um, uh, and, and I could go into a bunch of examples, but some of the, actually the nastiest stuff I've seen is stuff I've dug up when I've kind of looked around at, at races that happened in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, mm -hmm. way nastier than anything today. And Thomas Jefferson and John Adams seem to have had at it. They did well, a good job at it too. Pretty well uh, as well. As, as a final question, we're at the end of our time. Let me just uh, posit that 10 years from now, we've restored some of the bipartisanship and trust. Uh, can you describe what might have happened? Uh, uh, how this youth plus internet uh, uh, scenario might have developed? Each of you, a brief comment about uh, what what will lead us to the promised land, or what will lead us to greater confidence in our elections. I believe that incumbents today, this will be a little counterintuitive, that incumbents today are going to get really fed up with the current system uh, and their inability to control their own message. And across the aisle, incumbents sitting in Congress and the legislatures will decide to forge a more sensible system. Cooperation by the incumbents. Yep. Ace? I, I think there's two things that are happening that are interesting. And, and uh, you know, one is the um, really the increasing inability of candidates to kind of get over, over poll tested, over you know, kind of nonsensical, say nothing <coughs> stuff of on voters. I think voters are wise to that and they're looking for something different. And so I think that will change. And, and what I referred to earlier is the fundamental growth of independent voters, I think will change the balance. And final word? I think that if you look at polling, there was a CBS New York Times poll, I believe, done about a month ago, and they said, 80% of the American public 
are upset about the money in politics. They're upset that it appears that only the wealthiest are making all of the policy decisions by their associations with candidates. And those kinds of, of and this is Republicans and Democrats. It's not, you know, it's across the board. And I think that that sense in the American populace is going to militate for change. I want to thank uh, our panelists for their participation today in our discussion. Our, our, panelists, our panelists have been Ann Ravel, the chair of the Federal Election Commission, uh, and veteran campaign strategists Ace Smith and Ben Ginsburg. We also want to thank uh, our audiences here uh, at the Commonwealth Club on radio, television, and on the internet. I'm Professor Kirk Hansen of Santa Clara University's Markala Center for Applied Ethics. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, where, where the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week -week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Catch the Michelle Miao Show Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the Progressive Voices Network. 